to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name's Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We've got two hours of going against the grain, and we keep thinking we're going to have a show with some breathing room, and then uh, people keep doing wacky stuff. Doesn't work out that way. Yep. So we are going to start, of course, with the story of the day. Liz Truss defeated by a head of iceberg lettuce. Yep. Yep. She lost. Who will replace her? What the hell is going on in the UK? We are going to be asking these questions and uh, maybe, maybe answering them. Uh, apparently, Boris Johnson is going to campaign to be her replacement. Yeah. Crazy He's among as like the four possibilities, at least according mm-hmm. to, I think it was NBC News or right. whatever, who helpfully told me who might right. be coming in to replace her. New York Times has a little box saying, oh, it could be these four people. And now. It could be Boris Johnson. And, you know, honestly, John, I remember I said, I said, I thought, I thought a head of cabbage could absolutely defeat her. Absolutely. But I did not expect it to come from a head of iceberg lettuce. No, I didn't either. Yeah. She is the shortest serving prime minister in the history of the United Kingdom. I mean, kudos to everyone who made this possible. I don't know. I, you know, schadenfreude is, of course, an ugly thing, but it just is funny to watch. There is, of course, also a lot more to talk about. Uh, we are going to ask where all the water in the Mississippi has gone in recent weeks and whether we should be worried about that. You know, I, I, you expect a lot of bad things to happen because of climate change, right? Uh-huh. The Mississippi River drying up was not one of the things that I had considered. And we'll also ask, I mean, because be, it's such a big river. Uh, that water levels are not uniform across it. So some places are seeing record low water uh, levels. Some places are seeing, oh, it hasn't been this low in a decade. So, you know, uh, yeah, it is. And also, of course, uh, two months ago, a bunch of places in the Mississippi River Basin were flooded. Were flooded. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it is. It is. I will be curious what our guest has to say about uh, how how rare this phenomenon actually is and and what it yeah. should tell us. And honestly, whether uh, whether maybe the Mississippi River will get a little bit more attention than the Colorado River has. We're also going to get into uh, the story of what happened to the Bering Sea snow crabs. These yeah, are they vanished. Yeah, this is like a headline that's been bopping around for the last week or so that we haven't talked about, uh, but we're going to sort of combine it in that story with our climate specialist. We are going to check in on midterm voting in Georgia, which is breaking records for voter turnout in a midterm election, which is surprising some people uh, who thought that last year's voting legislation would have the opposite effect. Right. And there have been lines but they're not out of control lines. They're, they're in most places less than 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, one computer system went down and caused a line that was two hours long. It has since passed. So it seems to be working out. Yep. We will ask why black farmers are suing the U.S. government. We will ask about increasing tensions between Greece and Turkey. We will ask why Silvio Berlusconi's name is once again on everyone's lips. And uh, really some funny juxtapositions uh, with why Berlusconi's in the news. Yeah. New York Times, perhaps a little bit embarrassed that they had just touted him as, uh, you know, crucial for the health of of Italy's democracy. And then he uh, is caught on tape. Basically, yeah. uh, you know, criticizing, criticizing the West for the conflict in Ukraine and saying, well, saying yeah. some things that the New York Times would probably not agree with. 
Um, we are going to get a report from combat zones in Ukraine, and uh, we might get around to asking where exactly Joe Biden is in this election cycle. So, yeah, yes. there's there's a lot going on. Um, also, just to sort of a headline that was floating around that caught my eye because sometimes I like this uh, wonky stuff. But did you see that the the funding mechanism of the Consumer Financial Protections Bureau uh, was ruled unconstitutional yes. by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals? Yes. N- the notorious Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. It has become notorious. Yeah. Uh, They have decided that the CFPB violated the Constitution because it gets funding through the Federal Reserve rather than legislation passed by Congress. And, you know, that never made sense to me because this was a congressionally mandated organization. This was the brainchild of of Senator um, Elizabeth Warren. It never made sense to me why the Fed, which is a quasi-governmental organization, was was funding it. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean— Critics of this decision say it's not the only it's not the only institution that is funded this way. Um, you know, this is uh, I mean, the, I think the I think the real story is 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 in the name. Right. This is an attack on regulation that is intended to protect consumers, consumers. Mm-hmm. against predatory lending. I mean, part of this uh, decision came about because of a uh, challenge to a payday, le- you know, payday lending mm-hmm. regulation that's that right. had been enacted. So, you know, I just think this is one of these little like drips that's sort of a, a sign of the times that I think is worth uh, noting. Uh, but we better start in the UK where where the big news is coming from. Joining us for this conversation is Dr. Kenneth Surin. He's a political and foreign affairs analyst, and he's a professor of literature and religion and critical theory at Duke University. Dr. Surin, thanks for being here again. Uh, you're welcome. So, you know, Liz Truss can perhaps take some comfort in at least finding a place in the record books. She has announced a resignation after just six weeks in office, and she says her successor will be chosen by her party in the next week. Her resignation follows a high-profile uh, resignation of one of her cabinet members and apparently a, a public argument with her party's chief whip that took place outside a fracking vote that was seen as a loyalty vote for her. Uh, And so, you know, Suella Braverman's uh, sacking slash resignation happened yesterday. John and I mentioned it on the show. But I'm wondering if you can catch us up on what this fracking vote was all about and if this was the thing that really precipitated Liz Truss's resignation. Um, I don't think so, but it was a symptom um, of the chaos within the Conservative Party. The fracking vote was uh, consequent upon the removal of a moratorium on fracking. Um, Trust proposed the removal of the moratorium, and the vote was about that removal. Uh, there were fisticuffs, fisticuffs outside the voting lobby, wow. prompted mainly by her supporters who were dragooning other MPs into voting, quote, the right way. So uh, this was widely depicted in the press as uh, something symptomatic of um, the meltdown within the Conservative Party. And wider than that, uh, posing the question, um, how can you govern the, the country when you can't even govern yourselves? Yeah. I mean, I think reasonable to ask. And so who I mean, who who is going to be named her replacement? Who you know, talk to us about the Tory bench. Well, the uh, the procedure for choosing the next leader 
hasn't been firmed up yet. Uh, it, given the timeline, we know it won't be the, the previous procedure, which involved hustings and then um, and a vote by MPs, uh, which required the candidate who was at the bottom to drop out of the race uh, week by week until there were two candidates left. And these would go to the party membership to be voted on. Uh, the whole process the last time took several weeks. If this is to be completed by October 28th, uh, it's not going to be conducted that way. So uh, the election for the next leader will be conducted by the backbench committee called the 1922 committee. Um, and they have yet to announce uh, the way in which the selection process will proceed. This parliament has been around for such a long time, and yet every procedure seems to be ad hoc. It is constantly funny, like, right? I would have it's thought like, there's a set procedure. It's the first time they've ever done it. Yes, it's amazing. I would have thought there would be a set procedure for finding uh, the replacement. So do you have any idea? I mean, I, I, I don't know. Rishi Sunak seems to be a... Uh, would be a reasonable guess. I mean, Boris Johnson is sort of the the comic guess, but I don't think outside the realm of possibility. Uh, would you Would you even want to say who would be a, a front runner right now? Well, I think uh, the names you mentioned will be front runners. Um, you know, they have pure ambition, if not anything else. Um, Sunak, you know, the Conservative Party membership is deeply racist. Uh, it's nativist, it's right-wing populist, et cetera, et cetera. And he's brown-skinned. So uh, if the conservative membership is involved in choosing the leader, uh, he has a disadvantage against him. But if the election is uh, engineered in such a way that uh, the membership will be given a minimal role then given that he is popular amongst MPs uh, as a technocrat, et cetera, et cetera, he stands a chance. So it will depend on how much the party membership will be sidelined in this selection process. Mm -hmm. um, Labor leader Keir Starmer is, of course, calling for a general election. Uh, my understanding is the government doesn't have to hold an election until 2024. Uh, but it, of course, could decide to call for one if it felt it had to due to pressure or if it felt like it had an opportunity to renew its mandate. And so I wonder what you think the chances are of a general election in the near term. It is very difficult to say. It will not be in the immediate uh, near term because the uh, the person chosen as leader will want to uh, have sufficient time to become more visible in public. Good point. About their agenda, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so it won't be before Christmas. It won't even be in the spring. Um, I think the Tories will punt this um, until uh, the end of 2023. Um, but of course, factors could intervene because in addition to the considerations that you just mentioned, which could precipitate uh, um, a general election, there's also the fact that a no-confidence vote in 
the government, uh, and of course this would almost certainly be initiated by the opposition parties, um, a vote of no confidence, uh, if successful, uh, will precipitate a general election. And I wonder in that case, I mean, again, it's it's hard to predict what happens between now and, and 2023 uh, with this cost of living crisis in the UK, energy crisis, you know, the winter is just starting. Who knows how people are going to feel? But I wonder, you know, uh, what, like just what what is the Labour Party? What kind of beast is the Labour Party following this really ugly purge of, of supposed anti-Semites and in reality often anti-war voices? Uh, you know, what... How how would labor do in its in its sort of new form, uh, even against what appears to be a comically inept conservative party? Um, a caveat here: I'm a member of the Labour Party. Disenchanted okay. <laughs> uh, very significantly with the leadership of Keir Starmer, who's more interested in fighting the left wingers in his own party, of whom I'm one, mm-hmm. um, than he is in taking on the Conservative Party. His strategy has been to sit on the fence and watch the Tory party self-destruct and then by default become popular as a result. So not not a good sign for people who want genuine change in the UK. But uh, he's not really interested in genuine change in the UK. He is a solid establishment figure. And really, uh, his pitch is going to be, look, um, I'll have basically the same um, policies as the Conservatives, with a little bit of trimming here and there, um, but I can promise you that that I'll be more competent than they are. Mm. I wonder how effective a message that's going to be in a you know, period of, of social and economic crisis for the UK. And I wonder how well, like... I promise to do this similar thing slightly better than the previous guys. I'm not sure. Of course, you know, again, it could just end up being a vote against conservative. I don't know. How, how, who do you think is perhaps going to be set up to take advantage of this kind of the kind of turmoil that the UK is seems like just at the beginning of? Well, the conservative, the conservatives, uh, I think, will almost certainly lose an election. <laughs> Uh, the Labour Party could emerge as the largest party. Um, and then there are two other considerations that have to be taken into account. One is disenchanted conservative voters will be tempted to switch to uh, the slightly more yellow liberal Democrats, uh, who have already in by-elections made inroads into conservative support. So at the time of a general election, uh, these protest voters who switch to other parties tend to uh, return to their original allegiance. And uh, that might dent support for the Liberal Democrats, but they should make some gains. The other consideration is the vote for the Scottish Nationalist Party. Um, I think the Conservatives, uh, who are already on their last legs in Scotland, will be wiped out. Labour, which is against uh, Scottish independence. Now, the variable there will be how much will that be held against them. If there's a tidal wave in favour of Scottish independence and that becomes a a campaign issue, then Labour will also uh, find itself down in the vote. 
uh, and the Scottish Nationalist Party will, of course, pick up all those votes uh, that have um, been decimated. Uh, the Tories, as a result of their incompetence and indifference to Scotland, labour because it is anti-independent. So, in terms of the broad scenario, that's it. Sounds like we're standing at the very beginning of a of a long stream of dominoes right now, and it'll be interesting to see how they fall. That was Ken Surin. He's a political and foreign affairs analyst, and he's a professor of literature and religion and critical theory at Duke University. Dr. Surin, thanks as always for joining us. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back. We are on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C., and we'll talk to you in a sec. Fits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Ukrainian utilities are urging residents to conserve power after Russian strikes against infrastructure targets caused rolling blackouts yesterday. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said that 30% of the country's electrical infrastructure already has been destroyed or damaged. Meanwhile, Ukraine is asking Jewish groups around the world to put pressure on Israel to, under, to send Ukraine its Iron Dome system to protect against Russian strikes, Israeli Defense Minister Benny Gantz said that Israel will not provide the system to Ukraine, but would offer advice on how to develop its own system, which will probably take 20 years. And an American citizen, Dan Rice, who's an advisor to the Ukrainian military leadership, we told you a little bit about this yesterday, said in an interview that Ukraine needs far more weapons to continue fighting and that Russia, quote, is trying to get, excuse me, is trying to get to the negotiating table, unquote, but that the Ukrainians are not interested. We're joined by Sputnik News journalist and news analyst Wyatt Reed. Welcome back, Wyatt. So much for having me, John. Thanks for joining us, Wyatt. You're currently in Moscow after having spent a good amount of time in Donetsk. Tell us what the mood is like in Russia right now. What are you hearing from people on the street about the course of the war? Certainly quite a bit more optimistic, I think, than I would have said maybe just a couple weeks ago um, when there was kind of a sense that um, the Ukrainians were striking back, that they were uh, on the offensive. Um, and there were, I think, questions by average people about how far they would be able to advance. Uh, it seems that in terms of the hostilities right now, the line is being held pretty firmly in Kherson and Kherson, for example. Uh, this city in the south, um, in Donetsk, in the Donbass, uh, Russian forces and Russian-leaning forces uh, are advancing, especially in the city of Artemovsk, or at Bakhmut, as it's referred to frequently in uh, the West. Um, in terms of, you know, not just maybe people on the street, I think, you know, my personal opinion, um, we, we heard uh, recently basically a call from Kherson uh, vice governor, a man named Kirill Stremesuov, to evacuate the city, call for all civilians to leave. And basically the idea now is that this is going to become a battlefield, um, that the city is going to basically uh, become defensive uh, position. It's going to become fortified. Uh, the Russian Federation forces are preparing for an onslaught. 
by uh, the Kiev regime. And so now they're making uh, defensive lines. I imagine the tall buildings will sort of be turned into eagle's nests, that uh, all of this will be done in an attempt to basically, uh, you know, say here, no further, go the Ukrainian forces. And, you know, I spoke to Kirill uh, a few weeks back when I was in the region uh, witnessing the referendum. And I talked to this guy, um, you know, a couple weeks after he survived a car bombing attempt, an assassination attempt by the Ukrainians. And, um, you know, so his remarks are basically being portrayed as somehow um, the the Russian Federation forces are, you know, uh, they're scared that they are um, preparing to evacuate. And, you know, just having having met this guy and, and talked to him for uh, actually pretty decent length of time. Uh, I just have an extremely different take on the situation. I, I wrote a post on my telegram saying that, you know, just after having survived this assassination attempt, um, this guy was cool as a cucumber. He, I said, he, uh, made Ferris Bueller look like Woody Allen <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of a joke, but, um, the man was not phased in the slightest. And I don't think, you know, he's, He's preparing, you know, to evacuate uh, the Russian Federation forces. I think you can take this man at his word when he says, you know, we're basically uh, preparing to defend the city at all costs. And I think that is reassuring to large segments of the Russian society, the Russian population. I think they take these kinds of signs as um, as a sign of optimism, as a sign of, of that things are going positively for them. Uh, in the military conflict uh, currently. We're starting to see reports that countries around the world are already tiring of providing weapons and weapons systems to Ukraine. The Israeli government, as I mentioned in the introduction, said that it would not provide Iron Dome technology, and the Cypriot government said that it would not send Ukraine its Russian weapons. How do you see this developing? Is it going to be more difficult for the Ukrainians to arm themselves as we move forward? Well, far and away, the largest provider of weapons to the Kiev regime forces is the United States. Yep. Um, so it's not clear what effects these potential weapon shipments might have had on their military capabilities. I do want to push back on this framing a little bit because okay. we always have to ask the question, which Ukrainians are we talking about when we say they're you know, going to arm themselves? I went to a, a bar last night with a colleague from RT from Russia Today, and the bartender described himself as Ukrainian, and he said he's from Lugansk. Um, and I told him a little bit about my trip to the region last week. I went to a town called Rubizhnoya, and I spoke with a principal of a high school, and she and another instructor described to us what it's like teaching there for the last eight years. And the way that they were forced to teach that the Ukrainian insurgent army, which slaughtered hundreds of thousands of Jews and Poles, were actually liberators in the Second World War, that they actually fought on the side of the good guys. Um, and now this principle told us that for the supposed crime of collaboration, for this crime of continuing her students' education under the government of you know, a Russian Federation-leaning republic, she faces 15 years in prison if Zelensky's troops ever come back. She said she would face another 15 years just for speaking with me. And these aren't necessarily idle threats. You know, we saw in this same town 
the wreckage of another high school that had been totally obliterated. And the locals told us it was destroyed by six U.S. manufactured HIMARS missiles. And this is apparently because some of the people who were organizing that referendum last month were said to have been meeting there. Um, we walked a few hundred yards away to an apartment building with just a massive crater outside that this building had all its windows completely blown out. And we asked this woman outside who had a makeshift cane, uh, the 60-year-old, 68-year-old uh, babushka named Natalia. Uh, she said she was the only one still living in the building. And we asked her who fired the rocket. And she said those cursed fascists. And she broke down crying immediately, describing just what a hell her life has become. And she told us, you know, she hasn't been able to contact her kids, that now she looks up at their pictures on the wall at night and asks them, you know, look, look at what my life has become. And we kind of took off our journalistic hats at some point here and said, well, we have to go try to find something for this woman to eat. And right. we went down to the humanitarian aid office and just... Um, you know, got her in touch with uh, volunteers there. And they had a whole list of old women just like her who, you know, they had problems getting humanitarian aid because their personal documents, their identifying documents had been blown up. And so, you know, we were able to kind of get a volunteer over there and we, you know, get some bread and some, you know, cigarettes and sausage and, you know, things that would be able to keep hopefully for the time being to her and um we got to walk inside what was left of her apartment it's just utterly devastated no windows it's going to be tough for her in the winter obviously um and we asked her you know what do you think about americans after this knowing they kind of that we basically in some ways made this possible what's happened to you and she said well they must just be beasts they must have no heart why else would they do this to me? And, you know, I think, um, you know, when I when I told all this to this bartender last night, he was he was pretty happy, actually, not obviously for that, not to not to hear that is pretty devastated by it. But he was happy that there are a handful of us in the West who can see things from his perspective. But we're never when we talk about arming Ukrainians, we're never talking about arming people like that. And, you know, even suggesting something like that in Western Ukraine, that would get you killed. Um, and in the West in general, it would get you demonized and vilified. My goodness. Here in the United States, we're seeing something of a debate on aid to Ukraine, um, especially within the Republican Party. There's a small but growing minority among Republicans in Congress who are more and more adamantly opposed to the blank check that Congress so far has given Ukraine. Do you think that this will have any near-term uh, effect on military aid to Ukraine, or is this a longer-term U.S. political issue? I know that you tweeted about this today. Uh, are Ukrainians really, really shocked, as the Financial Times reported, that this debate is taking place? Yeah, so that's a comment coming from the, uh, the leader of Zelensky's party in uh, what people refer to as the, the parliament of Ukraine. It's hard to call it that, given that they basically banned all opposition parties. Um, and Kevin McCarthy said recently that I think people are going to be sitting in a recession and they're not going to write a blank check to Ukraine. And, you know, I certainly can't speak on behalf of the Kiev regime, but on some level, I can't imagine that they were shocked, given that 
the fact that they've been given what I think the likely future Speaker of the House accurately described as a blank check from U.S. taxpayers so far, I think there probably is some genuine surprise on their part that a political figure of this stature is suggesting that eventually the gravy train will reach its last stop. U.S. taxpayers, you know, including myself, including yourselves and most of our audience, have been forced to fork over close to $70 billion to them so far. And basically, no politicians have had the guts to refuse. Anyone who suggests peace is attacked in the media, slandered, libeled, painted as a puppet of Vladimir Putin. Um, even billionaire Elon Musk, who's been the subject of, of numerous hit pieces by the mainstream media after he proposed peace, he pointed out that Crimea had been part of Russia since the 1700s. And then, you know, his uh, reward for this was, a you know, well, there's a wave of just hit pieces. A week ago, the New York Times gave us a great example of this with an article headlined, Elon Musk foments more geopolitical controversy with Ukraine internet dispute. And they said in the lead, quote, the world's richest man whose Starlink internet service is critical to the Ukrainian army said he could not indefinitely fund the system's use in Ukraine. So that's kind of the attitude. Um, basically, this just very sneering, um, very, very deprecative tone towards anybody, uh, even somebody who's on their side. Right. You know, Elon Musk is company. SpaceX is currently providing the Zelensky regime right. with Starlink, which he described last week as, quote, the primary communication system of the Ukrainian army on the war front. Um, this came just a month after he tweeted that Starlink is for peaceful purposes only. And even he, for the crime of speaking this way, was briefly added to the official Ukrainian government hit list, Mira Toretz. And unlike myself and the other journalists who've been placed on this list, he was very quickly removed, presumably after a few particularly frantic phone calls. But this just shows you the political pressure that's being applied to any potential peacenik out there. Um, so, of course, given the prevailing atmosphere, I believe, you know, on some level, I could believe, I think, that the Kiev regime forces were shocked by this comment from the man who's likely to be the next Speaker of the House. I, I certainly was uh, on a personal level. Well, I'll tell you, he repeated it again yesterday uh, in, in the context that that aid to Ukraine is not going to be at the top of the list of priorities for Republicans if and when they take over the House of Representatives, um, as well as um, uh, the debt ceiling. It, it was a whole list of things that the Republicans were not terribly interested in. And at the top of that list was Ukraine. Uh, there were reports today, Wyatt, that a Russian fighter jet fired a missile over the Black Sea that was somewhere in proximity to a British surveillance plane. This is actually one of the top Ukraine stories in the uh, American news today. I'm having trouble understanding why the UK is so upset about this today. There was no threat to this plane. The plane, frankly, has no business being over the Black Sea anyway, but that's just my own opinion. The Russians initiated a legitimate wartime strike. Why the controversy? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Certainly an intriguing one to me as well, because this strike that they purport to be so outraged over that did not uh, appear to endanger their reconnaissance 
flight in any way. Um, this happened last month. Ah. So to me, it is very curious that you said that now it's being reported. I saw this story, I bet an hour, I believe, before uh, former UK Prime Minister um, Liz Truss stepped down. So to me, that question, uh, I think, might be a bit more political than in terms, you know, the actual newsworthiness of this story. Uh, to me, it kind of seems, and obviously this is just speculation, but it kind of seems like this was a kind of political cover, something to draw attention away from uh, the very disastrous leadership of Liz Truss, the fact that she had, um, I believe, just a 10% approval rating <laughs> was the most recent poll. That's right. just five points higher than Prince Andrew, who's uh, you know basically known to be a pal of, of uh, now deceased pedophile and um, intelligence asset, uh, Jeffrey Epstein. So this, uh, to me, all of this kind of the, the timing of it suggests that it's uh, more political in nature than I think, yeah, a, a real legitimate news story. And finally, and I know that you're not an expert uh, in weapons systems, but I'd like for you to approach this next question from a political perspective. Secretary of State Tony Blinken is asking American allies around the world to send their old Russian and Soviet era weapons to Ukraine um, and to have them replaced by new American weapons. The reason that he's doing this is because, (coughs) excuse me, apparently... American weapons are difficult to use. You have to undergo training in order to use them. And there's no time for training. And so the Ukrainians say, look, your your weapons are too complicated. Can't you just give us what we're used to? Give us some, some old Soviet weapons. We don't have any Soviet weapons. So Tony Blinken went to Colombia. He went to Peru. He went to Chile. He's had phone calls with the leaders of South Africa. The Democratic Republic of the Congo, Cyprus, Israel, countries all over the world, about half, less than half, have said, "Okay, we have some old Russian weapons. Uh, We'll send them. But countries like Israel and Cyprus, which has almost exclusively Russian weapons, um, have declined. What does this mean politically, either in the United States or in Ukraine? Are, Are we looking at at approaching a period where the Ukrainians just aren't going to have the kinds of weapons that they've heretofore had? Yeah, well, it's it's hard for me to say specifically the impact on this, uh, you know, this will have. Um, I think I'm not sure if, you know, the jury's still out as far as I'm aware on how many of these countries will have finally uh, basically accepted this. Mm-hmm. I think there are reasons why certain countries would do this. Obviously, they are going to be provided with newer and in many ways better military hardware and basically be able to trade up in, you know, in some sense. Um, but in terms of the political angle, I mean, I think this kind of shows the, on one level, a level of desperation mm-hmm. uh, and another, the level of isolation that, you know, uh, in February, in March, uh, there was a huge diplomatic push to make sure that um, a majority of the countries in the world would would sign up to kind of this this propaganda war, would participate in it, would condemn Russia and the United Nations. Um, and increasingly, you're seeing uh, more and more hesitation, especially in what top EU diplomat uh, Joseph Borrell recently disparagingly described as the jungle 
which is, you know, the rest of the world, the mm-hmm. non-European, non-American world, uh, you're seeing a hesitation among these people to uh, to participate in what's increasingly understood to be a, a proxy war between Russia and between NATO. Um, and I think the fact that there are hesitations, increasing hesitations to do something that objectively would be beneficial to a lot of countries' military, uh, it does showcase this kind of isolation. The fact that um, increasingly more and more of these countries, especially the ones that are feeling, uh, let's say, disparaged and put it nicely, uh, they don't want to necessarily sign up for this broader uh, war against Russia. And, you know, that may have a significant impact on the battlefield. You were right that um, operating these U.S. Uh, military, this hard, hardware, first of all, it's hard to integrate Soviet and, and U.S. hardware. It's hard for it to work together um, properly. Also, lots of Ukrainians don't even speak or read English, right? right. They read right. Cyrillic. Um, so just in terms of pressing the right button, that can become a serious challenge as well. Um, but obviously, they have had uh, considerable military success with the U.S. weapons that they've had so far. So, I, you know, I think it's a little bit too soon to say exactly what all of this means. Um, but if I were Zelensky, I would probably be a little bit worried about this. If I was Anthony Blinken, I would certainly be worried as well. Indeed. We'll leave it there. That was the voice of Wyatt Reed. He is a Sputnik News journalist and news analyst. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and come right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are talking now about a lawsuit filed by the National Black Farmers Association on behalf of minority farmers who say the federal government breached a contract it had made with them when it reneged on promises of debt relief and priority funding that it made back in 2021. Uh, Joining us is one of the people taking part in this lawsuit, John Boyd. He's a farmer and a civil rights activist and the founder and president of the nonprofit National Black Farmers Association. John, thanks for being here again. Good afternoon, and, and, and thank you for inviting me back. I really appreciate it. Talk to us about this class action lawsuit. Uh, this is over the rollback of a $5 billion fund that was to be set up through the American Rescue Plan Act to help pay off or pay down the debts of minority farmers who have, of course, been discriminated against by the U.S. Agriculture Department basically since the department's inception uh, and to otherwise support minority farmers. I, I just want you to walk us through what happened and and talk to us about why you decided to sue for breach of contract. Yes, and, and uh, basically we see this as a broken promise on behalf of the United States Department of Agriculture where uh, the Congress actually repealed the whole measure. so, And we're looking for 120% uh, uh, debt relief that we were promised in the first place. It's not a, it's not a uh, partial write-down the way that USDA is, is trying to roll it out or, or anything like that, any type of loan reamortization. We're not looking for that. We're looking for the 
that Congress passed into law, and they repealed it. This this administration repealed it, and it really damaged farmers further. By they went out and made other plans based on uh, the promise for for debt relief, and we had a signed contract, a signed agreement. Uh, the black farmers and and other farmers of color that include Native American farmers, Hispanic farmers, and uh, Asian American farmers. We had a written agreement, and the, the government broke it when they repealed that. And that's basically what we filed in, in uh, federal court. And we also went after the discrimination funds of, uh, for those uh, farmers of color who have been discriminated against. And as you saw yesterday, I think the uh, administration rolled out they were doing something for 36000 uh, farmers and 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 they did it at the drop of a pen. Mm-hmm. And what we're saying is they could have done that for black and other farmers from the very beginning, when the, when debt relief was was initially passed, uh, uh, twenty two months ago. Mm-hmm. They drugged their feet, and we think the, uh, the secretary did it purposely to allow white farmers to sue us in twelve cases uh, around the country. And when you say a promise was made, I mean, the American Rescue Plan, it passed with this language written into it. But also, didn't the, U- the USDA sent letters to farmers, right, saying this debt relief is coming and describing what was going to happen, right? Absolutely. I want to be perfectly clear here. And the farmers accepted the terms. They, 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 they checked option one and they sent it back in and they waited with due diligence and faith in our government that they were going to execute it. They didn't. Congress chose to repeal it, and they repealed the whole measure. Uh, not part of it. They repealed the whole 120%. And now USDA is trying to paint a rosy picture that, uh, you know, paying up a couple payments for some farmers, uh, uh, distressed farmers is the term that uh, that the administration is using. And they really put in the shaft to uh, these 16,000 uh, black and other farmers of color. Right here now calling us every day. You know, I'm traveling today, and the phone hasn't stopped ringing from farmers who who just can't figure out what the Sam Hiller government is doing to them here. Right, because I think also, as you say in this lawsuit, you know, people responded to what they were told, to the language in this bill and to what they were told in this letter. We're in the middle of a pandemic, and they made, uh, you know, they made certain financial choices, not least because we were in the middle of a pandemic, and there were novel pressures on our food systems. And so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, you know, it's not just necessarily uh, accumulated debt here that that these farmers are upset about, but perhaps, you know, taking on new debt out of a patriotic duty and then being told, oh, no, actually, you're not going to get the support that we promised. Yes. And first, I would like to thank Ben Crump for filing this complaint and uh, coming out and swinging to to, uh, uh, defend uh, black and other farmers of color. And that's the first thing. And the second thing is the farmers put their trust in uh, Congress, uh, this president, and and the United States Department of Agriculture secretary. And they failed to execute uh, uh, the measure for full debt relief, which was 100, 120%. And uh, we're not trading 120% uh, for, for, for uh, uh, a partial payment or, or some type of uh, uh, patch deal. Uh, for farmers, and it, it's, I see it like this: uh, if I get 120 percent, I get my deed back to my farm. For people listening, so that they can understand the difference. And the minute, and then this this administration is proposing a partial payment. You know, like you're a couple of months past past due, and all of a sudden we're going to make a partial payment to America's farmers. I'd much rather have my deed of trust so that I can make a new start uh, in, in my farming operation. Like many farmers made those plans to do so. They went out and 
and bought tractors and made other financial obligations based on the fact that they were going to get this 120% uh, uh, that Congress broke that promise. And we see it like 40 acres in a mule. And uh, that's why I bought my, my, my mule to Washington last week, uh-huh. Mule Jesus, because, uh, you know, Jesus rode into Galilee on a, on a mule, people. So I wanted to see what a mule meant to a, a, a black farmer, which is why I bought our mule there uh, last week. Uh, to file this case along with the other four uh, members of this class action and uh, Ben Crump. So, again, we would like to recognize him. I also want to ask, I mean, we, we've talked about this on the show in uh, different scenarios many times, but I wanted you to remind listeners why the government decided that this $5 billion was needed. You know, what is the history of discrimination against non-white farmers by the USDA? And, and, and first, I would, I would like to backstep. And uh, these payments that uh, USDA is proposing now will be reported as income uh, to these farmers. Oh, that's a big difference. Oh, man. Yeah. Access on it. And the 120% that uh, we initially got, the 20% was to pay the taxes. Uh, so so they really, uh, you know, they, they said that they're helping us, but, but they're not. The 120% is a much solid, better deal. Uh, for for black and other farmers of color, and for what we heard as of yesterday, I think. Uh, and and before I make the statement, I want people to know I ain't got nothing against white farmers. Seventy percent of the monies, uh, uh, you know, that went out yesterday went out to white farmers. And I've been making this request on behalf of black and other farmers of color for thirty for thir- for thirty years, people, three decades. We never got to debt relief, and here, you know, they changed the language in Congress, and it said to tr- uh, distress farmers. So now. White farmers are benefiting from that effort, and, and I'm really not upset about that. But what I'm saying is, honor what you said you were going to do, which is the 120%. And uh, for the president, who, who really courted me for my support, when he wanted to be president, has turned a deaf ear to my calls to sit down and talk about this. That's not the way you, you treat your friends at the time of trouble and the time of need. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wonder also, uh, you know, if you can remind us, why it was that the you know the original American Rescue Plan thought it was appropriate to offer this debt relief to black and brown farmers? You know, if you can tell us a little bit about this, the history of discrimination. Well, farmers like myself who, who really didn't get the, the debt relief, even though I had a uh, 1997 uh, written agreement, the first agreement uh, for this, to settle a discrimination complaint, I was supposed to get debt relief and the farm out of federal inventory. Both of the lawsuits over the past three decades didn't entail uh, injunctive relief executed, excuse me, by the Department of Agriculture, even though we were supposed to get it. That's why I went back to Congress to get uh, debt relief. And, and Cory Booker did have a, uh, you know, Black Farmers Bill out there that included all of these things, you know, getting the land back, uh, debt relief, all of these things. We thought that pulling this measure out would give us a more chance of having success. And they included farmers of color. So I was impressed and, and, and ready to move forward with that. And then they repealed it. So I want the listeners to know that this is a three-decade-old request, get debt relief, where white farmers were, were getting debt relief with ease, and black farmers like myself was getting loan acceleration letters in the mail uh, for, for 30 days to pay this balance in full uh, when we got in trouble uh, un, under 1951S, which is loan servicing for USDA. White farmers were getting debt relief, and black farmers were getting a uh, check-this-box loan, uh, loan acceleration, 
or to put your uh, farm back in a program called Leaseback Buyback Program, where we lost millions of acres of land and it was put into federal inventory. I also want to ask if you can give us uh, sort of a picture of the average black or minority farmer, because I suspected they're going to be uh, smaller farmers, family farmers. And if the U.S. government did more to help small farmers, they would also be disproportionately helping helping this group of people. So I, I wonder if sort of concurrent yeah. to what you're seeking, if the federal government was just supporting small farmers differently, uh, it would go some way toward alleviating the situation people find themselves in. Absolutely. And, and uh, we've been asking uh, the National Black Farmers Association for years. Uh, we've been trying to get Congress and uh, the Agriculture Department to invest more monies into small and, and, and uh, new and beginning farmers, uh, black farmers, Native American farmers, small-scale farmers, invest in infrastructure instead of competitive grants. Uh, they continue to put these programs in Congress for competitive grants. We have to find matching funds. We don't want that. We want infrastructure for farmers. That means our equipment, uh, seeds, and fertilizer, and operating capital, the seed capital to, to start these operations. The same thing they did for uh, uh, Ukraine. Uh, they provided $250 million, and they, and they sent it over there without all of these strings. Yes. When monies are, are put out for us, there's all of these strings, and there's always a wait period and a commission equity commission now and all of these things that uh, a federal register really requires certain uh, listings that we have to go through to get monies. And then when they uh, put out monies like they just did for primarily white farmers, it, it went out with a stroke of a pen. It wasn't advertising a federal register or, or anything or asked people what they thought. They made those payments because they were getting pressure from people like you. And what can you tell us what these payments that just went out were? How how is that language different? How are they different than what you were fighting for? Well, we're asking for 120 percent. Oh, right. The administration is proposing as a loan modification. Right. That's uh, they said they're going to bring farmers current. So if you were a season pass due or whatever plus interest, they they just bought your current uh, your loans current uh, based on. Like I said, a stroke of a pen, and all of a sudden it happened. And then they said, well, you know what? We're going to send letters out later to even tell you what these amounts that we paid off. <laughs> Not very useful. I've done that for black farmers 22 months ago, another farmers of color, when I was pressing the administration to do so. Yeah. So what happens next now? You've uh, filed this file suit. Uh, sorry, this lawsuit's been filed. Uh, ben Crump is, is representing you. Uh, where, where does this go next? Well, hopefully we can get class certification so we can include all of the uh, targeted groups that are covered by this <clears throat> by this definition. So we have a defined definition by Congress, which is farmers of color, uh, black, Native American, and Asian and Hispanic farmers. Those are the ethnic groups that is going to be will hopefully be covered under this new uh, lawsuit in, in, in federal court. So we hope that we get a hearing and then uh, class certification. And hopefully the administration will come to his realization that they need to honor the commitment uh, and, and, and the broken promise that they made to uh, black and, and other farmers of color because they broke the contract when they repealed it. It was, it, it's, it was a written contract that black and other farmers of color put their signature on in faith in our own federal government, and, and they repealed it. Is there anything that, uh, you know, non-farmers, people who are obviously agricultural consumers, is there anything we can do to try to 
reshape our nation's food systems, which have become so hyper-concentrated and so uh, monopolistic. Is there anything people can do to help support small farmers, uh, minority farmers, and, and try to, like, you know, reshape some of this uh, hyper-concentrated food system we've ended up with? I, I will say a couple of things. First, they can support local farmers in your community. So if you know a farmer in your community, go by there, talk to that farmer, build a relationship, and form a bond and work a relationship with that farmer. That's the first thing. The second thing we can do in this country from a holistic standpoint is to support labeling. Uh, you'll cut right through the red tape, people. Uh, find out where your food comes from, who grows it, whether it's really organic or not. I mean, right now, people are just putting uh, labels in food stores. This is organic. And, and, and you really don't know. But if we have labeling like we do in third world countries, at least when you and your family and, and, and young ladies going grocery shopping will see that label on there, to say that this product is, does not contain uh, genetically modified uh, content, it will be up to you, the American consumer, to make that choice. I think that's the basic, the basic thing that we can do in this country to start to rectify a broken food system, uh, is making sure that the American people have the choice to get healthy foods versus, versus a uh, GMO product. John Boyd, thank you so much, as always, for joining us. Where should people go to find more about the Black, National Black Farmers Association and about this lawsuit? We have two websites, National Black Farmers Association, all spelled out, dot .org, and Black Farmers with the S, dot .org. Those are the two websites. And, and uh, people, we don't have to wait for Congress to fix nothing. We can, we can fix this with the support of the American people. And I want, um, I want America to be the judge of whether, whether I'm right or wrong here. And I know I'm right. <laughs> People will look at this. Uh, you have to see the historic patterns uh, that was wrong but for Black and, and Native American farmers and Hispanic farmers in this country. And you've got to say we've got to help fix this and we have to make it better for the next generation of farmers, which is our children, to make sure they don't suffer the way that I did at, at the hands of my own federal government. Yeah, I hope to see this lawsuit progress. Good luck, John. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for joining us. John, uh, we're going to take a break in just a couple of minutes here. This Adderall shortage is not going away. You know, I I kind of got a chuckle out of it when you first raised it a week ago. Mm -hmm. It's it's not laughable. This yeah, is I a mean, serious thing. Yeah. Uh, it's there's an article again in the in the Washington Post today saying people are actually having trouble people are having trouble filling their prescriptions. Mm -hmm. Um, and also noting that, I mean, I don't know how, well, I, I will take their word for it that um, it's it's difficult to access Adderall because it's a, it's regulated because it is basically just amphetamines. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't recall it being particularly difficult to access when I was in college, <laughs> you know, because, uh, I mean, there are people who are prescribed Adderall and then there are people who take Adderall recreationally. And, sure. and if you don't have ADD, it's just, I mean, it is just speed. Right. But I guess speed hits you right. differently if you have ADD or ADHD. That's right. Um, but uh, yeah, no, that was, you know, I guess you can get a prescription at the drop of a hat. Getting it filled is another matter. Right. Yeah. I thought that was that was pretty funny. Um, yeah. Well, what else is going on in the news? We actually had a lot uh, at the top of the show that we, because we had Wyatt Reed on so quickly, we didn't really have a, a chance to... Uh, to talk about it, uh, you pointed out something from the New York Times. Let me see if I have enough time. I have a minute. Mm. That Richard Haas, the head of the uh, oh, yeah. Council on Foreign Relations, for the last 20 years, 
uh, is stepping down. He replaced Les Gelb, Leslie Gelb, who used to be the uh, way back in the day, the host of Meet the Press. These are serious foreign policy people. Um, uh, Richard Haas served in four administrations, but it also is sort of the home of neoconservatism and neoliberalism and interventionist foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, there aren't enough minorities in CFR. There aren't enough women in CFR. Yet Richard Haas's time there is being lauded in today's New York Times as I a great say, triumph. It's not. I'm not excited to see new blood at the top in this administration. Agreed. You know what I mean? Like Agreed. this isn't the environment in which I'm going to be cheering on whoever manages to rise to the top. Yeah. Let's see. Let's see who it is. All right. We're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back with some with some more international stories, some environmental stories, lots of stuff. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. And as promised, we are talking about the disappearing Mississippi River, at least temporarily disappearing, and then uh, at times emerging yeah. <laughs> in much too large a format. Uh, but the disappearing Mississippi River and the disappearing Alaskan snow crabs, which, uh, uh, sure, uh, are related somewhat. They uh, have to be. But being treated very differently in the press. Joining us for these two distinct conversations is Guy McPherson. He's a scientist. He's Professor Emeritus of Natural Resources and Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Arizona. Guy, good to have you back. Thanks, Michelle. It's good to talk with you again. Let's start with the Mississippi. Um, it is a huge r- river, right? So water levels are not going to be the same uh, all along its length. But it is at lows not seen in decades in some places. In at least one, it is breaking records outside of Memphis, Tem- Tennessee, for uh, lowest water level. And so I wonder if you can talk to us about what is happening, because obviously some fluctuation is normal. Uh, but I'm wondering if there is something else afoot here, especially because the U.S. West is uh, in the grip of this mega drought. Well, thanks to both of you for this very timely story. And thank you for putting up with my struggle as I fight through this bad cold I have. Oh, you and me as both, both, man. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's terrible. As most of us know, great civilizations arise along rivers. And as the rivers go, so go the civilizations. I'd like to start with a story that appeared in the Wall Street Journal six days ago, October 14th, 2022. The headline reads, mm-hmm. Drying Mississippi River Threatens U.S. Supply Change. Yes. The take-home message is contained within a single quote, in this case from Mike Ellis, CEO of American Commercial Barge Line in Indiana. Quote, America is going to shut down if we shut down. And this line is reminiscent of the bumper sticker seen on trucks throughout the United States since the 1970s. Without trucks, America stops. Dozens of stories indicate the dire nature of the situation with respect to the Mississippi River. The Mississippi River Basin produces more than 90% of U.S. agricultural exports and nearly 80% of the world's grain exports. Wow. That's huge. The river itself is a major means of transporting all kinds of materials. What's happening in the Mississippi River is also happening in Italy's Po River, as we talked about earlier. 
on this show and also several other places around the world. You don't need to look very far before you can find additional examples. Now, with respect to the question about whether the situation is normal or not, consider that earlier this year, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, predicted that the 22-year mega drought affecting the West would not only intensify, but also would move eastward. And that prediction appears to be coming into fruition with about 82% of the continental U.S. currently showing conditions between abnormally dry and exceptional drought, according to the U.S. Drought Monitor. Obviously, this should come as no surprise. After all, we're in the midst of a mass extinction event underlain by abrupt, irreversible climate change. Even the political body trying to pass itself off as a scientific organization, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, concluded that climate change is abrupt and irreversible with two reports in 2018 and 2019, respectively. And specifically, in its October 8, 2018 report, Global Warming of 1.5 Degrees, the IPCC included this line, citing the peer-reviewed literature. Quote, these global level rates of change far exceed the rates of change driven by geophysical or biosphere forces that have altered the Earth's system trajectory in the past. Even abrupt geophysical events do not approach current rates of human-driven change. End quote. In other words, the IPCC admitted more than four years ago that Earth is in the midst of the most rapid environmental change in planetary history. Vertebrates and mammals are unable to keep up with ongoing and projected rates of change. As vertebrate mammals, I cannot see a way for humans to avoid joining the casualties resulting from the ongoing mass extinction event. I just, I just don't see a way around it. And the Mississippi River, in this case, is a harbinger of the world and of what's to come. It's, it's interesting to me because, you know, the mega drought in the West has been underway for some time. The Colorado River and the reservoirs at Lake Mead and Lake Powell have been shrinking for some time. And it seems like the you know, there, every once in a while there will be a spate of articles about it and some hand-wringing, especially when, you know, the time for water allotment uh, comes around. But it is, I guess, I guess it's not surprising that it is framed as more of a, oh gosh, this is a real, this is a sort of water problem. Whereas what's happening in the Mississippi is, uh, as you, you know, uh, began your response by saying it's being termed a, a business issue. You know, it's a transport issue. It's a supply chain issue. And I was going to ask if you think, you know, I maybe this is East Coast bias, but it seems like the, the Mississippi is maybe the most sort of culturally resonant river in the United States, right? The Colorado is very important, but the Mississippi, as you said, uh, the Mississippi Basin provides 80% of the world's grain, 41 of the 48 contiguous states of the U.S. drain into it. Like, it's a major thing. And yet, I don't know, it doesn't seem to be getting a ton of attention. And the attention it's getting is like, oh, yeah, it sure is a shame we have these barges uh, waiting. So do, do you think that I, I don't know. Do, do you think that this is we have to wait for this phenomenon to, to continue for a while for it to get some attention? What's going on? Why? Why is this not a bigger story? Yeah, that's a good question. In general, a warmer Earth is a wetter Earth. Heating causes evaporation. What goes up must come down. But there's a lot of variation among locations and climate change tends to cause a redistribution of precipitation rather than simply causing more precipitation. So some areas get much wetter, while others get drier. And that's what we're seeing in certain places along the Mississippi River. One of the recent drivers of increased precipitation in local areas is the smoke from large fires in the western U.S. And smoke contributes particulates that allow for the formation of precipitation as the smoke in the atmosphere moves east. So 
I think that's one of the reasons we're seeing increased precipitation in some places at the same time as we're seeing drought afflicting much of the continental United States and the continental North America for that matter. Yeah, because I think it's hard for people to get their head around sometimes that, uh, you know, flooding and drought can exist almost simultaneously. And uh, our infrastructure is really built for neither. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. The other story I wanted to ask about, we didn't get a chance to talk about this last week, um, but the cancellation of Alaska's winter snow crab season and the mystery of all where all the crabs have gone uh, or why all the crabs have gone, which is uh, probably the more important question. Uh, so last week, the Alaska Department of Fish and Game canceled the snow crab season in the Bering Sea for the first time in history. Uh, the par- department said the population of snow crabs had dropped by nearly 90 percent from 2018 to 2021 plunging from 8 billion to 1 billion. State officials also closed the fall red king crab harvest for the second year in a row, citing a low number of mature female crabs. Uh, And NOAA, NOAA Fisheries, said the declines were likely the result of climate change, which had forced more fish species to move in search of cooler waters. And so this is like, oh, where did the crabs? Did they die? No, they just went, they went somewhere colder. Uh, this information is coming from a story by the Greenwire News Service. Um, and I wanted to ask because warming oceans seem to be a given, but there are also a lot of questions being raised about how crab harvests have been managed over the past decade. And just last year, a NOAA whistleblower came forward and said the agency had for 40 years misclassified fish, fish deaths and pushed this idea of uh, natural mortality events to cover for the fact that they were just overfishing these already dwindling populations, which really looks like uh, climate change being used to cover for unsustainable industry practices. Uh, And I wanted to ask what you make of this whole crab episode. Well, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot to that. A warming ocean is almost certainly an important factor. So, too, is an acidifying ocean. It doesn't require much change in the environment to destroy habitat for any species, including crabs. I suspect overharvesting, driven by the bottom line, has been and remains a major factor in this case. After all, we all know about cases in which the lack of regulations or a toothless regulatory agency make it almost impossible to do the right thing for future generations. You, you could argue that that's a one-sentence summary of the long, tawdry story of disaster capitalism, with the U.S. leading the way, right? The, the toothless regulatory agencies and the lack of regulations, almost, it makes it almost impossible to do the right thing for future generations. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not terribly surprised, but uh, it's, it's very disappointing. You know, we go back at least a century in the United States to what I've been calling disaster capitalism. I have yet to be convinced that capitalism, at least the version with which we are familiar, is consistent with sustainability in any money-making endeavor. Sustainability means forever, after all. In the case of the Iroquois Confederacy, no decision of significance was made without considering the impacts seven generations into the future. But we haven't been following that model since we essentially destroyed indigenous life in this country. And forever is a very long time relative to our short lives, much less relative to quarterly profits. And so, you know, I think money just keeps getting in the way of doing what we very frequently know is the right thing. It almost feels like, I wonder a little bit about the psychological effect of this, uh, that, you know, 
there, I mean, there, there was such a, there is such a thing as, as, as sustainable harvesting, right? There, there is, you can actually figure out what is a, a level that you can take from, you know, the, the bounty of the land and the bounty of the oceans. But I kind of feel like it is possible that we are seeing a sort of PR effort to, to push the idea that there's actually no safe level of harvesting. So it, it's either all or nothing. And might as well be all. I don't know. I, I I wonder if this is kind of if it's not the intention of the this uh, you know apparent or alleged four decade uh, f- practice of deceit by Noah. It, it seems like it might be the effect of it for people to just sort of throw their hands up and go. Uh, you know, turns out turns out human beings can't can't fish. Inevitably, we fish all of them, and the oceans die. And I feel like that inevitably isn't inevitable. Right, absolutely. And <laughs> you know, this is what we do. There's there's going to be 8 billion of us according to projections in the middle of next month. So, not long from now there's going to be 8 billion people on the planet. How are how do we do anything sustainably with 8 billion and rising on a finite planet? And we we certainly have not set very many good examples of sustainable practices. <laughs> It seems that, as usual, the money is getting in the way of what we very frequently know is the right thing to do. I I just, you know, it's everywhere. It's not just with crabs. It's not just with fish. It's not just with the ocean, although because life arose in the ocean, we should be a little bit concerned about what goes on there. It's everywhere. It's deer. It's elk. It's bear. It's every species that I've come across in my short lifetime. Yeah. Eight billion people in the beginning, in the middle of next month. That's when yeah. we're going to hit it. And that's eight right. billion people with uh, less livable land, right? I mean, there's a lot of conversation about parts of parts of the Middle East uh, and South A- South Asia becoming basically unlivable for human beings mm-hmm. uh, pretty soon. So, yeah, I mean, guy, I think I suspect you would say, you know, certainly that that would lead to intense conflict just over living space, except we probably won't be on the planet long enough for that to occur. Am I right? <laughs> no, I think that I think the conflict is already underway. I think we're, we're witnessing World War Three in Ukraine and Russia. And, you know, it, it probably hasn't affected your life and my life very much because we're in this relatively protect, protected Caucasian people bubble in the United States. But I can promise you that the events that are occurring in other places in the world are having great impact or being greatly felt by people elsewhere. It's the same old tragic story of, well, the Carter administration comes to mind. That's our oil over there with respect to the Middle East. And by extension, that's our everything everywhere. And we're going to get it no matter what it takes. So it's dismal. But. What else would you come to me for if not for dismal information? No, yeah, we know. We know what we're getting with you guys. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I think it is just it is bizarre to watch. Just slowly watch river level, levels drop and go, gosh, this is inconvenient. Uh, but it's, you know, the the thing that is driving these forces is such an enormous thing that it can uh, feel, you know, if you do think, as I think, you know, that sort of capitalist system and uh, and the way that it has overtaken the world is what is driving uh, these situations. It can seem uh, just incredibly hard to take on. And so what are you going to do but stand on the banks and watch? Right. You know, we've we've long known that the central portion of large continents 
tend to dry out during mass extinction events that result from planetary heating. And this case appears to be following the customary trend. It's just getting drier in the central parts of North America and getting wetter, at least near the oceans, um, on the edges. All that information should be telling us that we're screwed, that we should pursue excellence and adventure in our short individual lives. But what it's actually telling most people is we need to hope more or reduce emissions more or rely upon somebody else to fix the situation. And none of that is going to help, I'm afraid. Yeah, I'm going to get into the idea of pursuing excellence and adventure. I think that sounds pretty fun. Guy McPherson, always great to talk to, genuinely great to talk to you, even if the tone of the conversation is pretty somber. That was scientist uh, Professor Guy McPherson. Thanks, as always, Guy. Thanks, Michelle and John. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming back. Now we're going to talk about some more uh, apparently just completely ephemeral American politics for a little while. But hey, we're going to practice uh, excellence and, and political adventure as we do it. Right, John? That's right. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot to talk about. Uh, record turnout, frankly, <clears throat> and long lines mark the first day of early voting in the state of Georgia this past Monday. And early voting already, get this, has surpassed what it was in the 2020 presidential election. Mm -hmm. More than 131,000 people voted on Monday. That's an 85% increase over the first day of voting in 2018. Wow. And some lines lasted for hours. Former state Senator Stacey Abrams, who's running for governor against incumbent Brian Kemp, maintains that the vote in Georgia is still being suppressed. She said that as recently as this morning. She says that requiring a photo ID scares new voters and minorities away from the polls. Uh, she appears to be wrong based on the numbers that we're seeing so far. And in Florida, in the Senate uh, debate on Tuesday night, Senator Marco Rubio argued against both early voting and voting drop boxes. Come on. If you're not going to have a holiday to Seriously. vote, how are you going to what do you want to do? Just have people well, stand in line for 10 hours? Get this. He I mean, said he doesn't want people to vote. That's the bottom line. Yeah. He doesn't want people to vote. But he said that early voting was unreliable. What's that mean? NF, NFI. What does that mean? Yeah, unreliable. That's all he said. It's unreliable. What you can't is that count. even? Is it like the count is you can't <laughs> store the count securely? I just don't understand what it means. Well, the even better. Crumble He's, into dust. He said that drop boxes could attract terrorists. Oh, he on. said that the terrorists could bomb the drop boxes to influence the electoral outcome. Val Demings, the Democrat running against him, the former chief of police of Orlando, um, asked him how drop boxes are any different from mailboxes. And he wouldn't answer. I mean, the only answer is, I guess you could say, perhaps a terrorist would feel some compunctions about blowing up people's <laughs> love letters and packages in a mailbox, but would feel no mail. such compunctions about a drop box. I just don't. Ridiculous. Uh, and yeah. listen, the drop boxes aren't just out in the middle of nowhere or the grocery store parking lot. The drop boxes are at the voting sites. Oh, for God's sake. Right? We have a drop box over here um, in uh, in the courthouse neighborhood of Arlington, Virginia. You can go right now. We've had open voting for, well, I guess since the beginning of the week. But um, you can go vote anytime during the day or take your absentee ballot and put it in the drop box. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going over there to bomb anything. Uh, yeah. He's such a dumb dumb. <laughs>
<laughs> Let me ask you about Georgia, John. I mean, during the presidential election uh, and that Senate race, Georgia became a yeah. focus of national oh, attention. Yes. Right. And then it's voting legislation that it passed. And we talked to lots of people on the show who are very, very critical of that legislation and said it was an effect, you know, attempt to suppress the vote, which, of course, its drafters contested. Right. And now certainly seems like either because of or despite that legislation turnouts really high. But has there been the same national focus on not, I guess, focus, but, um, you know, investment, I guess, particularly by Democrats to, to get the vote out this time around? Because I feel like I've seen a lot right. of attention, but I haven't seen a lot of people saying, like, I'm going to Georgia to canvas for no. Raphael Warnock or whatever. So does this feel like more of a a Georgia it, phenomenon it, or is this being driven yeah, outside the state? It seems like a Georgia-specific thing right now. Pennsylvania is attracting some some outside volunteers, but but mostly it's Georgia. And I think it's because of the stark contrast between Reverend Raphael Warnick and Herschel Walker. Like people are taking that race personally. And I think they are in Pennsylvania too, because, well, especially since Dr. Oz, the Republican nominee, has begun uh, mocking uh, the the health situation of Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. People mm-hmm. are angry about that. And so people are going from out of state. But you're not seeing that in places like Arizona or Nevada or even Ohio, Florida, North Carolina, New Hampshire, where there are equally close Senate races. We just aren't seeing that. Speaking of Fetterman, you know, Joe Biden has gone to meet him. Uh, it just landed, I think, in the last hour mm. uh, to go to a campaign event. One of the rare events for Joe Biden this season. Yes, yes, one of the rare events. And I suspect, although nobody has said anything publicly, I suspect that many of these campaigns have asked Joe Biden to stay away. Mm-hmm. They're asking for Bernie Sanders. They're asking for Barack Obama. They're not asking for Joe Biden or yeah. Hillary Clinton, for that matter. Oh, no, <laughs> I hadn't even occurred to me. Seems like that wouldn't. Uh, yeah. Where was, where was Barack Obama headed? You Wisconsin. Oh, OK. Yeah. Wisconsin on behalf of Mandela Barnes who's now fallen about five percentage points behind Ron Johnson, something why, that just mystifies me. I wonder why Fetterman obviously wanted or didn't did yeah. not want Biden there. Is it because he he's in Pennsylvania? He's, he's originally from Pennsylvania. Yeah. He's from Scranton, Wilkes-Barre area. Yeah. And he's still very, very popular in eastern Pennsylvania. And that's kind of where Biden's got the touch, I would feel that's like. Right. You know, like he does have a, mm-hmm. does have a, a sort of a charisma with, I would suspect, sort of the, the common man of Pennsylvania. Yeah, one of the things that has struck me about John Fetterman is he's perfectly happy to go into the belly of the beast. Yesterday, he uh, did a campaign stop in my home county, hmm. Lawrence County, which until the 1990s was a Democratic county and elected a Democratic congressman. Donald Trump got 75% there in 2016, and it is just Ruby red now. All of Western Pennsylvania, with the extent, with the exception of that circle that is Pittsburgh, is just as red as red can be. But Fetterman went there, packed the house, gave a great speech, hit Dr. Oz as hard as Dr. Oz has been hitting him. Not afraid to go into these heavily Republican areas and say, look, we have a lot in common. You know, we both support the working man. We both support our Second Amendment rights. We both support, uh, you know, aid to 
to farmers. Uh, farming is the fourth largest, uh, 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 what do you call it, industry in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, Oz isn't doing that. Oz isn't going to Philadelphia or to Pittsburgh or to Erie or to Harrisburg. He's staying only in those areas where he knows he's popular. Yeah. As someone whose first experience and encounter with Pennsylvania was Breezewood, it oh took boy. me a very long time to admit that Pennsylvania is actually a very beautiful, a very beautiful state, even if it also does have yeah. uh, billboards of Joe Biden uh, dressed up like a member of the Taliban. Yes. <laughs> There's also a billboard I saw great. recently on the Pennsylvania Turnpike um, that's it said, um, the sun sets, the wind dies, but we always have coal. Oh, my gosh. That's just not true. It's just not even. Huge it's, billboard. It's finite. The, probably, probably the sun is going to unla- outlast coal. Oh, yeah. I would think. Without a doubt. Yeah. Right. Do you ever like to just imagine? Do you ever like to just think to yourself, what if the sun exploded like one second to go? Yeah. And these are my last like, this I don't know. I forget how long it takes for the, the light to reach Earth. But that's a, Somebody, that's a fun thing to do I, when you're walking around sometimes, well, guys, if I you saw, haven't tried it. I saw it. A recent interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, and somebody asked him, what would happen if the Earth stopped rotating just for one second? And he said, it would kill everything on the planet. Oh, and he, he went into this very long description of, of what would happen, that it would just kill all of us. We're, we're spinning at 16,000 miles an hour, right? Oh. And, and so if we just stopped, even for one-tenth of a second, we would all just be snuffed out. Yeah, I just happened to be listening to uh, uh, the microcosm of this about like the effect. What happens when you fall and land? Everything, right? Like it, your the outside of you stops moving, but everything but the inside, inside of you is still moving. Yes, that's yeah. right. Getting pretty gross here today. And so, speaking of the midterms, do you have do you have new polls? Yes, uh, there was a new poll today showing um, showing Senator Catherine. Uh, uh, oh, for heaven's sake, Nevada, Catherine Cortez. Catherine, oh, doggone it. I'm sorry. It's, it's, I just say it's that. not that present in, in my brain, right? Mm-hmm. That lady that the Democrats have in, uh, in Nevada, she's losing by one percentage point to Adam Laxalt. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looks like Fetterman is going to be okay in Pennsylvania, but I think that a prediction I made a couple of weeks ago is going to turn out right, that it's not because Fetterman is such a great candidate or because he's so deeply popular. He's really not. It's that it's that the Democrat who's running for governor, Josh Shapiro, is so wildly popular. And the Republicans have put up such a weak opponent in Doug Mastriano, this election denier, you know, January 6th guy, that Shapiro's coattails, I think, are going to pull Fetterman. Mastriano is one of those guys who got some Democratic support, wasn't he? To oh, push yeah. him ahead in the primary. They spent, they spent plenty of money on him, supporting him. Um, there's a close race in North Carolina that we haven't talked much about. Um, the Democrat Beasley is a former uh, justice on the, on the state Supreme Court. She's within a few percentage points of, um, of the Republican bud. But it, it looks like the Democrats, you know, if this, were, if this weren't such a Republican year, she might win that race. Mm-hmm. And similarly in Florida, um, Marco Rubio is just barely above the magic 50% uh, line. And Val Demings, while she's a terrific candidate, the Democrats couldn't have come up with a better candidate than Val Demings, who was actively considered to be vice president with Joe Biden. Um, 
he's beating her 51 to 46. That was a poll that came out yesterday. Yeah, it does. It seems like the Democrats might have. They might have gotten that good press a little bit early, unless we see some pretty big changes they, they peaked, in the next week. They peak too early. Yeah. A couple of weeks too early. Yeah. Yes. <coughs> I know we have our next guest on the line, so oh, why don't we take terrific. a quick break and come back, and we'll re- return to the world of international affairs, uh, get to one of your favorite topics, which is bad mm-hmm. things Turkey's doing, and more. Catherine uh, Cortez Masto, thank you, Ben. She is, yeah. We'll take a quick break here on Political Misfits. We're live in D.C. We're on Radio Sputnik. We'll talk to you in one sec. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Two Russian men were arrested yesterday, and three more were charged by the Justice Department for a complex plot to send sophisticated electronic components to Russia, some of which have been found on the battlefield. The 12-count indictment includes allegations of illegal oil shipments from Venezuela to Russian shell companies cryptocurrency transfers, and money laundering. Meanwhile, Turkey remains in the news for a number of reasons. As inflation moves across the 100% mark, President Erdogan announced a massive increase in spending for the benefit of his core supporters. At the same time, he made the clearest threat yet to attack the Greek islands, saying that Greece must completely demilitarize all Aegean islands immediately. Turkey's under fire from the United Nations and the European Union after the Greek government released photos of 82 migrants forced to cross the border from Turkey into northern Greece while completely naked. The migrants said that the Turks had taken their clothes and had beaten many of them. And Turkey is taking very seriously Russia's invitation to have it act as a gas hub for the eastern Mediterranean. We're joined by Elijah Manier. He's a veteran war journalist with 35 years plus in Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Libya, Sudan, and Yugoslavia. Welcome back, Elijah. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, we're very happy to have you. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin with these arrests. One arrest was made in Dubai and another in Italy yesterday. There are another three people expected to be arrested soon. What kind of electronic components are we talking about? Are these something that needs special permissions to purchase or... Are these just game systems that any teenager can buy, but which might have some dual uses and then might be on an export uh, list at the Department of Commerce? Well, actually, I was very shocked when I uh, read the news because what we know from the president of the EU uh, Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, that Russia is using semiconductors from refrigerator and washing machine. Uh-huh. for its plane and tanks and uh, uh, supersonic missiles. And it is laughable indeed. Uh, we can't be more stupid than that. However, if Russia is using these semiconductors from fridge and washing machine, why on earth they need to go and buy uh, exactly what the U.S. is claiming, that um, uh, pieces uh, for high-precision industrial grinder and more, they say it's also component for nuclear weapons program. So this is a very deja vu for me. I've seen that 
throughout the years against Iran and Hezbollah in Lebanon, whenever they want to increase the accusation or exchange prisoners or put pressure on Iran for its nuclear deal or nuclear negotiation, they say, oh, we have arrested this group and that group. And normally, as usual, they always arrest innocent. Now, what is interesting here is the arrest of Yuri Orekov, that is the son of the Russian governor. And that is part of the U.S. uh, bullying and blackmailing, uh, perhaps to exchange prisoners that are caught in Ukraine or perhaps to try to stir up uh, the pot inside Russia. That didn't even occur to me. But, yeah, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Wow. That's that's an angle I hadn't even considered. But I think that makes plenty of sense. Well, the Americans are experts in this field, and we've seen them before. I mean, look at the accusation that uh, the uh, Orikov is selling uh, hundreds of million bags to Russia and mm-hmm. China. Mm-hmm. I mean, Russia doesn't need, Russia produces 10 million barrels a day. So if you look at the kind of accusation and uh, who is concerned and who is formulating it and the pressure on Dubai and Germany and Italy, you understand immediately the link and how the U.S. is doing it. And because violating international law is something permitted to the West, nobody is going to render the U.S. accountable for its violation of the law. Good point. Elijah, we've been following this increasingly frightening and serious back and forth between Turkey and Greece. The Turks are now demanding that the Greeks completely demilitarize all Aegean islands. That's a non-starter for the Greeks. Most of their military, of course, is in the Aegean islands. Uh, They are taking the threat seriously, and they've asked both Washington and the European Union to intervene. But Erdogan is facing a tough re-election. The uh, the election will be next year, and he could easily launch even a limited attack to rally support at home. Uh, one of the things the Greeks are very frightened of is the very tiny island of Castellorizo, which is the easternmost island. It's not even in the Aegean. It's, it's in the Mediterranean, and it's just – it's so close to the Turkish coast you can swim from Turkey. Um, they're afraid that the Turks will – take over the island. It's only a mile and a half long and less than a mile wide. It only has but a few hundred people on it. Um, the Turks could, could take it, you know, in, in 15 minutes. Um, how do you see this playing out? Is, is there a real danger of war here? Well, it's important to understand that the reason behind all of that is not only history, but also oil and gas. Right. So it is true that since the fall of the Ottoman Empire, we're talking about 1912 and 1913, and then the Treaty of Lausanne 1923, the agreement in London 1914, uh, made the Greek in possession of island that belonged to Turkey. Accordingly, there is a condition of their demilitarization. That's right. So Turkey, the, the problem is the interpretation of the Uh, treaty and the agreement. Turkey said no weapons and no uh, armed vehicles should be on the islands. And the Greeks saying this is a wrong interpretation and I'm going to keep uh, military power on these islands as long as there is a Turkish threat. Now, I don't think there is going to be a war there. But I think 
Turkey wants its share of oil and gas. It wants to sort out this problem with uh, Greece. And Greece is not willing to talk to Turkey about these islands and not willing to sit around the table and try to draw a demarcation and borders, maritime borders between the two countries. Now, we've seen the recent news from uh, on a Turkish newspaper about a drone saying that there are, there are ships, uh, Greek ships, military, a landing military vehicle in the island of Lesbos and Chios. And that uh, they saying, well, this is not allowed and this is a clear violation of the international law. And this is where the debate uh, starts, considering this is an unlawful activity and Greece saying, well, we don't want you to invade us like you have invaded Cyprus, right. but we're not going to allow you to walk in. The point is the Mediterranean has oil and gas that Europe is in desperate need of. This is the main core of the problem. And Turkey is ready to fight for it oh, yes. because it is related to its energy, security and prosperity. The Russian government has raised this idea of Turkey being a gas hub for the eastern Mediterranean. What would this look like? Would this gas hub be created from scratch? And politically, how does Turkey, a NATO member, um, how does Turkey become a major gas transshipment point on behalf of Russia when almost every other NATO country has these crippling sanctions against Russia. How is Turkey able to walk that line? Well, Turkey is playing a quite a remarkable role here. As you rightly said, it is a NATO country. The second largest forces in NATO are, uh, is the Turkish army. And Greece is a NATO country, and they are fighting uh, over exactly the same as oil and gas. And Turkey um, has discovered around 320 billion cubic meters of gas reserves in its water. And this discovery is an invitation for Turkey, an aspiration to establish itself as a virtual gas training hub. So now Turkey received gas from Russia, Iran, and Azerbaijan and pays quite heavily the bill of $40 billion a year for the gas import. However, President Putin offered Turkey to become a hub because the Americans, and that is my uh, conclusion, have sabotaged the mainstream, uh, the Nord Stream uh, 1 uh, and 2. They, they damage a little bit the Nord Stream 2 uh, because they want to prevent Europe from uh, returning to deal with Russia. And Turkey is saying, because the Europeans, I mean, we are so stupid to go and buy the gas, the Russian gas from India, and India is just putting extra money and right. putting its gain on the Russian gas that we are buying from India. Turkey is saying, well, I'm closer. I, my continent, my country is half in the Middle East and half in Europe, and I can sell it to you. So it makes sense for Turkey to become a hub if we in Europe want to buy gas from a close-by country. However, you will have a France that will oppose it because Turkey is not really well regarded in Europe. It is not really very welcome. That's absolutely right. I wanted to ask you about these reports that the Turks pushed 82 completely nude migrants across the border with Greece. The Greek government released photos of some of these men. All of them were men, by the way. And many of them say they had been beaten by Turkish border guards before being pushed across the border. Why do something like this? First of all, forced nudity 
is a human rights violation. It's a violation of international law. Second, what could the Turks possibly hope to gain by doing something like this? Well, I'm really puzzled with this news because there is really not much gain in that. Turkey accused Greece of violently pushing back migrants entering the country through the land and the sea. And Greece accused Turkey of pushing forward migrants to put pressure on the EU and blackmail the EU, asking for more money, more concessions, and uh, to be more included in the European Union. Now, Greece asked Turkey to respect the deal with the European Union, and uh, Turkey uh, say that you have also to respect the same deal. So uh, this struggle is endless between Turkey and Greece, and it doesn't make sense to put uh, 92 people uh, uh, naked and send them to to, to Greece. This is uh, it's a ridiculous and violation of human rights. There is no political gain of, uh, from no. this uh, gesture. No, I don't see an upside to this at all. Italy's in the news again today. Media reports recently have said that Silvio Berlusconi, the former prime minister, is set to be the kingmaker in Italy politically, which will likely see its first fascist prime minister since the end of the Second World War. That's Giorgia Maloney. But yesterday and today, we've seen leaked audio recordings of Berlusconi criticizing friends and allies and today saying that the conflict between Ukraine and Russia is the fault of Volodymyr Zelensky. Help us untangle this. Where's the information coming from, do you think? And is the point to hurt Berlusconi or is the point to hurt Maloney? Now, I must say that I really agree with uh, uh, Silvio Berlusconi when he's saying that the fault is Zelensky, sure. who offered his country as a sacrifice to the U.S. war against Russia and the U.S. supported by NATO and uh, other as a total 40 countries all working from Germany. So it is the fault of Zelensky. First. Second, it is the fault of Ukraine that is refusing to negotiate. But I uh, read uh, the newspaper of Corriere della Sera uh, saying that Berlusconi uh, received 20 bottles of vodka from uh, President Putin and he sent him 20 bottles of Lambrusco wine. <laughs> and uh, they laughed about it because they are good friends. At the end of the day, Russia was the only country that helped uh, Italy during COVID-19 when uh, the, the whole of the European Union closed the borders on Turkey, particularly the border between Ventimiglia and uh, Nice, uh, preventing the Italians from crossing and thinking that COVID will be contained in Italy. So they gave up on it. And Russia ran to help uh, Italy. And Italy is in need of the uh, Russian oil. So it's exactly like Hungary who said, I am not going to deprive myself and uh, the population from the 90% reliance on the Russian energy just because the Americans want me to do so. So it's exactly in Italy. And Berlusconi is someone with his 8% in the uh, National Assembly that can uh, bring Giorgia Meloni to power or can just turn the table on everybody. I could see that. Reuters is reporting that between the current Chinese Communist Party Congress and the next one scheduled uh, for 2027, Japan will undertake its biggest arms buildup since the Second World War. The Japanese say that this is an effort to deter China 
The Reuters analysis is quite deep. I, I actually learned a lot from it. And it anticipates conflict in East Asia by 2027. Is that's the situation very there? very soon. Yeah, that's right around the corner. Much sooner than I'd like, yep. Is the situation there as dire as the Japanese believe it? It is. And and also, it was my understanding that the Japanese constitution written at the uh, just after World War II ended forbids the Japanese to to arm a military. Well, what you are asking me here is Ukraine, the one who is the decision maker in this war? Of course not, because at the end of the day, if you analyze the news, how it is coming, the United States creates an enemy, creates a possible war creates a possible battle that is coming on the horizon, creates a scenario and say, okay, how we can counter that? Okay, so now let's start arming Japan and creating a strong uh, base in Japan where we can deter China if they attack Taiwan. Now, who said China is going to attack Taiwan? Right. The Chinese waited for 75 years and they can wait for another 100 years. And if they want to attack Taiwan, it's Taiwan is part of China. It is recognized in the United Nations. The U.S. said Taiwan, we agree that China is one and one country and Japan is, and uh, Taiwan is part of China. So, of course, there is a distance of a hundred and something kilometers between China and Japan. And China is a nuclear power has nuclear weapons, has an army that is very strong, has an economy that is a second uh, worldwide, and has no intention whatsoever to go and be aggressive and or re try to replace the U.S. Nobody can replace the U.S. with 750 military bases uh, around, around the, the world. world. Mm -hmm. Who wants to go and be engaged in that? So all that is a bit of, uh, of a fantasy only to impose deterrence on China and say we are defending the world, we are defending the aggression of China that is perhaps going to happen in the years ahead. But it didn't happen. Go and spend your money in countries where they need to. Go and spend it inside the United States to improve the health security, the education and everything else, and don't go and spend it on the military and say, create new enemies that don't want to fight you. Right. Well, thank you for joining us, Elijah Manier. Elijah is a veteran war journalist with more than 35 years of experience in Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Libya, Sudan, and Yugoslavia. We appreciate his insights. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. We'll take one more short break, and we'll come back, so stay tuned. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. Uh, John, I'm looking right now at part three of this Washington Post look into where former or retired members of the U.S. Armed yeah. Service go. So that started off with who's doing what in Saudi Arabia, then it went to the UAE. A hard turn now to Australia. Yeah. Which is pretty interesting. That it's surprised looking, me. It's looking at the role, uh, in particular, retired Navy servicemen um, and, you know, high officials, right, are playing 
uh, in Australia and says, uh, six retired U.S. admirals have worked for the Australian government since 2015. So including one who served for two years as Australia's deputy secretary of defense. What? I don't understand. I don't understand if that, I assume it's not a typo because it's been up for two days. I Perhaps he was a dual citizen or I don't, or maybe Australians have Americans serving <laughs> as deputy secretaries. It's, it's I, I don't know. I mean, there are no, there are no foreign nationals working at the Pentagon in leadership positions, right. not even five eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know what to make of that. It also says some of the admirals have worked for the Australian government while simultaneously consulting for U.S. shipbuilders and the U.S. Navy, including on classified programs. All of this, of course, I mean, the fr- <laughs> you start reading about the U.S. Sorry. Navy in Australia and you're like, OK, when are you going to get to the right. big submarine announcement? Right. And, right. Yeah. I Which mean, is what it's all if, about. If they, Yeah. I mean, you think Australia is paying a lot of money to these guys. Obviously, they want some access. Obviously, they want, you know, they want to get something back for all of that money. Uh, it is interesting to think that these, you know, these guys are consulting for U.S. shipbuilders while working for the Australian mm-hmm. government. So, of course, you have the opportunity to say, hey, this is I know this is what they're after. You know, they really want they really want the ships painted blue. Don't tell me you heard it from me. You know, whatever. And, you know, uh, and the- then you get to this. You know, absolutely screwing the French yes. on this nuclear submarine deal. It's become a, like a hobby Yeah, to screw the French. <laughs> and you notice the Washington Post had to sue uh, the Navy yeah. and the State Department to even get this information. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. It also connects uh, or dovetails nicely with this story from the same day that the UK is warning China. Uh, warning China is recruiting British pilots to train its military. It's saying that current and former British military pilots are being lured to China with large compensation packages to train the country's armed forces. Very interesting how, you know, it, China is luring. It's it, how do you, or do you present it as a pusher or a pull, right? Right. Uh, is it is it a bad thing that these things are underway all the time it's and they're capitalism. sort of pushed up and they're even encouraged by encouraged by the U.S. government? Uh-huh. Or China, and when it's China, though, it's China dangling right. a terrifying mm-hmm. stick. And then again, the German cybersecurity head gets sacked for having kept in touch with a lobbying group that included uh-huh. a, a retired subsidiary that's right. of a company that was founded by an ex-member of the Russian intelligence. I mean, it's like, it's just, yeah, the inconsistency is is pretty wild. That's all. I think it's funny every time. Hey, did you happen to see that um, with this drop in the the water level in Lake Mead, a kid, how old was he? Eight, uh, they just say he's under 18 years old. He was swimming in Lake Mead and contracted one of these brain-eating amoebas. Oh, this poor kid. So sad. It's called Negleria fowleri. Yep. I listened to a whole podcast episode on it once. Oh, it was very sad. This poor kid. First confirmed fatality. Uh caused by this amoeba at Lake Mead. It does make freshwater swimming seem very frightening. You know, when it I'm, is just random, right? Yeah, you just get some water in your nose totally and it random. happens to be one of those in there. That's it. It eats your brain. When I was in high school, my best friends, right? There were, there were four of us, five of us. One, one's passed away now. But his oldest sister had a house that had a pond on it. And it was a big pond. It was probably, you know, three acres, the pond itself. We used to swim in that thing all the time, have this green muck all in our hair, turtles trying to bite our feet, 
brushing up against catfish. And we used to laugh like it was yeah, no big deal. Fun. I wouldn't go anywhere near something like that now. Oh, that's sort of sad. I mean, like on one hand, it's good to be aware of, it's good to be aware of things so you can know if they are happening to you, right? So you can know the symptoms and yeah. think, oh yeah, maybe this is, that's how I went and got tested for cat scratch disease. Oh yeah, cat scratch fever. But it, like that knowledge shouldn't make you unwilling to engage with the nah, world. You know? I know. Hey, John, let me read you a headline. Yes. Because I want to ask if you think there's something wrong with it. I know you know the story already, yes. but here's here's what NBC said. U.S. diplomat's wife pleads guilty over fatal car crash that killed British teen. Yes. Do you think, is it accurate to refer to Anne Sekoulis, who was responsible for the death of Harry Dunn? She, she was driving on the wrong side of the yes. road in her car. She hit him on his motorcycle and fled the scene. Correct. Uh, U.S. diplomat's wife. Is that entirely accurate? Um, we think no. Right. Um, she was uh, pulling out of an installation outside of London, about 20 miles outside of London, mm -hmm. that is known as, uh, as a sister organization to NSA. Now, there are likely CIA officers assigned there as well. Mm -hmm. She invoked diplomatic immunity. Even though she doesn't have full diplomatic immunity. Right. And that's why she fled England. She killed this kid and just ran away. Wasn't she? I mean, not entitled to diplomatic immunity no. at all. No. I, not Her husband was an intelligence officer at the base, but also didn't it seem, it's pretty clear actually that that's what she was doing as well. And she shouldn't. Seems that way. Intelligence officers don't get diplomatic immunity. They do. Or sorry, if you're it, working it, for foreign intelligence, you don't get diplomatic immunity. Well, if you're working for your own country's intelligence service and you're assigned overseas, you get diplomatic immunity so long as you are included on the actual diplomatic uh, list right. that's maintained by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. It's my understanding that she was not. No. She was included on a secondary list, which is pro forma in friendly countries, but what it prohibits host countries from doing is snatching you off the street and holding you to exchange, you know, for okay. other uh, intelligence officers, you know, stuff you don't have to worry about if you're working in England, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, which is why she ran, because she knew her diplomatic community wouldn't cover something like this. Yeah. Well, the crazy part of this story is that she agreed to plead guilty to a reduced charge of careless driving resulting in death. Um she could be sentenced to five years. There, we don't know yet what the sentence is going to be. But even though she pled guilty, she would not commit to returning to the UK to face the music. This, this trial or this hearing was held by over Zoom. And the judge said, look, we really want you to come back. And the prosecutor said, we really want her to come back. And her lawyer said, well, I've talked to her and I don't think she's coming back. So... Another injustice. Pretty cowardly. I mean, I can understand. You, I'm sure, you, but obviously, this wasn't intentional. No. I'm sure you do feel terrible. But Harry Dunn's family feels worse. That's right. Right? That's and right. they've had to jump through such hoops. And face the consequences To get any attention for this, right? To get any attention, to get any kind of a accountability. Right. Yeah. There's yet another story. I'm not going to say it. I'm going to pitch it to you. But okay. there was a story that we both saw uh, this morning that uh, caused a lot of head shaking. And this is about a Republican candidate oh, yes. for for the Community College Oversight Board in Arizona. Mm -hmm. Apparently, this this poor guy's been under a lot of stress. Oh no! You know what I like to do when I'm stressed out, John. <laughs> <laughs> Does which is masturbate in public. Yeah, and when the cops caught him, 
with his pants at and underwear at mid thigh. Oh my god! Halfway through the act, in the parking lot of a preschool. Gotta say, we have no idea he was halfway. No, it's sad. Well, well, we don't. We don't know if he was halfway. <laughs> we do know that it. his pants yes. and underwear were at mid thigh. Was yeah, what CNN sure. said. Yeah. Um, He's in the parking lot of a preschool. Wow. And he said he's sorry. He was under a lot of stress. He, um, <coughs> I mean, he, he needed to take care of it and didn't realize that it was a preschool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I could, okay. Maybe he didn't know it was a preschool. I don't know. But like, I feel like maybe this guy has too much going on in his life to uh, adequately fulfill the obligations he's yeah. uh, trying to yes. undertake. He has suspended his campaign. Oh, it's that's for good. the best of the of the uh system, the college system. Yeah. You know, like I said to you this morning and I I said this really as a rhetorical question, but what in the world goes through these people's minds? You can't control yourself until you get home? Yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah. Yeah. Or find a yeah. find a, a Find a slightly more private place than a parking. Plus, how long were you in the parking lot? Yeah, seriously. Before they came. Right. To, to, before they noticed you pull off. Yeah. Right. That's I all. can't believe that somebody in the preschool didn't call the police and say, hey, there's a weird guy parked in the parking lot. I don't know what he's doing, but it doesn't look good. I mean, maybe that's what happened. Right? Could, could be. Yeah. Uh, we also got some news that we're going to go into a little bit more tomorrow, but we're uh, got some economic indicators dropping uh, about. Uh, the employment levels in the United right. States. Seems like the Federal Reserve has not yet achieved its goal of uh, throwing more people out of the workforce. Uh, I no, think I... new unemployment <laughs> applications are still pretty low. Pretty low. Yeah. Um, employment is strong. Yeah. The problem is inflation stronger. And the problem is what counts as employment. That's you right. know what I mean? That's right. I just think the How way How many that we... millions of Americans are underemployed? Yeah. The way we come at these figures or come to these figures is pretty flawed. We'll probably talk about that tomorrow. Oh, yes. But we don't have any more time to do that today. I want to say thanks to everybody who joined us today. And as always, to our producers and engineers here. And on behalf of poor John Kiriak, I'm dying over poor here. Poor guy. And me, Michelle Witte. Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>